Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 99. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 and follow with a consideration of the revival of the language of the Jewish people. Welcome to the conclusion of the first part of the book of Isaiah. As we've discussed before in episode 90, most scholars regard the book of Isaiah as actually probably two books, maybe even three. From a thematic and linguistic perspective, Isaiah could clearly be divided into two distinct parts. Part 1, which is chapters 1 through 39, actually consists of the prophecies of Yeshayahu ben Amotz, and part 2, chapters 40 through 61, which are anonymous prophecies from a period about 200 years after the lifetime of Yeshayahu during the Babylonian exile, which is why most scholars refer to part two as Deutero-Isaiah. So we made it. We've reached the final section of part one, where prophecies give way to reality. Now we come to the payoff. 701 BCE, Sanacheriv, king of Assyria, arrives in the land of Israel to wage war and mayhem. In the context of this campaign, Chizkiyahu comes down with an illness and recuperates, and some of this week's portion will in fact be prophetic as it relates to the Assyrian crisis. And there will be Chizkiyahu's psalm of praise for his recovery. Chapter 39 will even track Chizkiyahu's policies vis-a-vis Assyria in the post-crisis years. And if what gets summed up in this portion of the episode sounds familiar, it is because it is. The events described here closely hew to the account in 2 Kings chapter 18, or episode 86, and they will be recounted again in 2 Chronicles 32, or episode 247, which at this pace, if there's no zombie or Trumpy apocalypse, will drop in November of 2022. Of all three accounts, the first and the second are closest in length and detail, and the chronicler in 2 Chronicles less so. And ending a long section of prophecies with a little history is not unique. The book of Jeremiah will be capped likewise with some history slash recap of 2 Kings chapter 25. So perhaps a little context for the Assyrian crisis that preoccupies this episode. When Assyria's king Sargon II dies in 705 BCE, it's like suddenly all the subject peoples in the empire realize it's their chance to throw off the yoke of Assyrian oppression. So Sargon's son Sancheriv heads out on a campaign of suppression. Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway! Do you hear that? Do you hear that, eh? And though I've talked about Sancheriv before, specifically in 2 Kings, an aside about the man's name. How to pronounce it? In Biblical Hebrew, it's pronounced Sancheriv, but in Akkadian, it's Sin Aheriba. I think it's pronounced that way, Sin Aheriba, which means Sin has replaced his brothers. Sin is the god of the moon in Mesopotamian mythology. So, Sancheriv heads out first to Babylon in 703 and 702 BCE, and only in the fourth year of his reign does he make his way into the Syria land of Israel area to start suppressing the peoples there too. The local kings are emboldened by Babylon, and as we discussed in the previous episode, there is this standing promise of support from the Nubian kings of Egypt. Chizkiyahu, it seems, has considered the revolt even before Sargon's death. He wants to consolidate his kingdom to bring the remaining Israelites under his rule. He launches a religious reform, returning the focus of religious worship to the temple in Jerusalem by announcing a Pesach celebration with the, quote, remnant of the Israelite deportees. In a sense, and one could read this into Second Kings, the religious reform and the revolt were both part of the same scheme, as well as the invasion of Philistia and Gaza. The latter parts of Chizkiyahu's military adventures appear in the annals of Sancheriv, which we'll talk about shortly. 
the Assyrians were very concerned about who ruled Gaza and Philistia because those were the frontier lands with Egypt. And keeping those territories as part of an Assyrian vassal state system would protect Assyria's western border and blunt any potential Egyptian attack. Every day I'm buffering. The annals of Sanchiriva mentioned before record the details of the Assyrian king's campaign against Israel and Judah. What's unique about them is twofold. First, we have three copies of this record, inscribed on three clay prisms. One is in the British Museum, one is in the Oriental Institute of Chicago, and one is in the Israel Museum. I'll link to the Center for Online Jewish Studies' page on the prisms at thenextjew.com. The one at the British Museum, known as the Taylor Prism, is one of the earliest cuneiform artifacts to be analyzed by Assyriologists, as it was found a few years before folks figured out how to actually read the cuneiform. The second unique thing about the Annals of Sancheriv is how its description of the Siege of Jerusalem during the reign of King Hizkiyahu echoes the descriptions of the siege which appear in this episode and the other episodes I mentioned here in the Tanakh. And I say echoes in that some of the passages in the anti-Assyrian Tanakh align with accounts from the pro-Assyrian Annals. If one was to map out the accounts in a Venn diagram, there are some details in that spot of overlap at the intersection. But what both have in common most is the decision to relate events in an order which kind of bucks chronology. The Assyrian source centers its telling around the four flashpoints of the revolt, Tzor, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Judah. In each section, which follows a similar structure, the rebel leader is portrayed as well as his punishment, followed by a description of the conquests of the rebel cities and their subjugation. And finally, the Assyrian recounts the establishment of a new order in the land, as well as the new levy of tributes to be exacted from the now-defeated people. The order of the flashpoints follow... The geography, as if we accompany the Assyrian forces as they move from north to south. The north remembers. When the Assyrians arrive in Judah, as chapter 36 tells us, the major cities are immediately under siege. Rav Shakeh is dispatched to Jerusalem to trash talk the Judeans. His allusions to Judean religious reforms bespeaks insider knowledge, as if he had received reports of Yeshayahu's own prophecies and warnings. He speaks to Chizkiyahu, but more to the point, he speaks to the people. It's like he does an end run around the media filter and tweets to the peeps directly. He wants to demoralize the people, to encourage them to rise up against the failing king and his policy, to give up on the help from the splintered reed of a staff which is Egypt. He has three points to make. The first knocks the religious reforms, criticizing Chizkiyahu's relocation of all of God's high places from throughout the kingdom to Jerusalem. The second portrays Sancheriv as God's rod of wrath, smiting Judah, much in the way Yeshayahu did in an earlier chapter. But for point three, he goes off book, spouting the usual Assyrian talking point about how even God can't save them as the Assyrians and their gods have bulldozed their way across the Near South East. Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we go to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. The three Judean officials, Eliakim, steward of the palace, Shevna the scribe, and Yoach the recorder, witnessed this grand pronouncement and quickly beseech Rav Shakeh, quote, Please speak to us, your servants, in Aramaic since we understand it. Do not speak to us in Judean in the hearing of the people on the wall. 
which is a logical request because they don't want the people to be further demoralized by the Assyrian, but it's the reference to Judean, as in don't speak to us in Judean, that is curious. The Assyrians replies fast, furious, and frothy, quote, Was it to your master and to you that my master sent me to speak those words? It was precisely to the men who are sitting on the wall, who will have to eat their dung and drink their urine with you. That's nasty. And it's in Judean. Well, I don't need to tell you how this all went down. God ultimately redeems, the Assyrians flee, Hezekiah is sick and then healed, and after a friendly visit from the Babylonians, the Judean king is feeling pretty good about himself, but it's a feeling that will only linger in his lifetime. Yeshayahu foretells that, quote, A time is coming when everything in your palace which your ancestors have stored up to this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left behind. In other words, <laughs> Hey, that hurts. No wonder no one came to my birthday party. But Hizkiyahu is unfazed because all of this will happen after he's dead. So, in other words, <laughs> Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. When the Assyrian envoy, Arav Shakeh, is asked to, quote, Please speak to us, your servants, in Aramaic, since we understand it. Do not speak to us in Judean in the hearing of the people on the wall, it is indeed an odd locution, because we would expect the Assyrian to have said Hebrew. However, Ivrit, the word Hebrew as in a spoken language, never appears anywhere in the Tanakh. Hebrew, as referring to a person, does most notably in Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Yosef of rape. She refers to him as the Hebrew or the Hebrew slave. Epigraphic evidence, that is, ancient inscriptions, from the first temple period, does point to differences in dialect between the spoken language in the northern kingdom of Israel and that spoken in the south. But those differences were not significant enough to merit giving the southern dialect its own name, Judean, or as we would probably render it today as Jewish. Judean, or Jewish, as a distinct name-worthy dialect, perhaps comes from a period after Israel's destruction, when Judah became the religious center once again, and outside of the three versions of Rav Shakeh's smack talk and the request to switch languages, there is only one other mention of Jewish, Yehudit, as a language. It comes from the beginning of the second temple period in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, but ironically, the earliest use of the term Yehudi, Judean, or as we would render it, Jew, comes from the annals of Sanchariv itself, which refers to Chizkiyahu as Iyaudai. The history of Hebrew as a language of the Jews dates back about, oh, 3,000 years. Our first indication of a, quote, language of the Jewish people can be found in the book of Genesis, with the identification of Avraham as Mesopotamian in origin. Avraham most likely spoke Aramaic. Indeed, Sa'ad Yagaon, in his 10th century commentary on Sefer HaYetzirah, states that Aramaic was, quote, the language of the fathers. This situation changed within a generation or two, as evidenced by the story of Yaakov and his father-in-law building a cairn as testament to an oath they swore to each other. Genesis 31 reports that Yaakov, who had been born in Canaan, used the Hebrew word Galed, while Lavan, the Aramean, used the Aramaic Yegar Sahadutha. Yegar Sahadutha would make a great name for a dog, j just saying. Come here, Yegar Sahadutha. Oh, good boy, good boy. Fast forward to the closing decade of the First Temple period, a period we will be looking at again when we look to Yirmiyahu, with the westward expansion of the Babylonian Empire. Though the period of the Babylonian exile was short, 
Less than 50 years, it ushered in a period of extensive everyday use of Aramaic among Jews. Nehemiah reports that even after the return to Zion in the 6th century BCE, Jews needed Aramaic translations of the Bible, as it is written in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, quote, They read from the scroll of the teaching of God, translating it and giving the sense, so they understood the reading. Within 260 years or so, these Aramaic-speaking Jews would be conquered by the Greek-speaking Hellenes, and then about 260 years later by the Latin-speaking Romans. 200 years later, after two catastrophic attempts at revolt, the Jews resigned themselves to foreign domination and use of foreign languages. For example, the Egyptian Jewish community, which dated from the 7th century BCE, switched away from Hebrew quickly. In 410 BCE, they dispatched letters in Aramaic to the high priest in Jerusalem, appealing for help in dealing with the natives. 80 years later, similar letters are dispatched in Greek. When Hebrew ceased being a spoken language, it became a sacred language, a language with unique metaphysical status. However, over the centuries, and for an overwhelming number of the educated, meaning men, Jewish education meant a basic Hebrew literacy, which facilitated understanding simple texts such as passages from the Tanakh, Rashi's 11th century commentary, or selections from Rabbi Yosef Karo's 16th century guide to Jewish observance called the Shulchan Aruch. Any texts requiring greater Hebrew literacy were often translated into other languages. But in order to ensure a wider understanding of Bible, Jews translated the Tanakh into various vernacular languages. This practice was widely regarded as a necessary evil, if not an outright evil, as the day the Greek translation was completed was, as Tractate Shabbat says, as grievous as the day the golden calf was made. As conflicted as the feelings were about this practice, it was a common one for about 2,000 years. Aside from functions related to the sacred and basic literacy, Hebrew also served as a pan-Jewish language. Works considered important were translated into Hebrew to reach a wider audience. Yehuda ibn Tibon's great contribution to Jewish scholarship was his translations of Bachya ibn Pakuda's work, Chovot HaLevavot, Duties of the Heart, Judah Halevi's Kuzari, and Sa'adya Gaon's Emunot V'deot, Beliefs and Opinions, into Hebrew. Much of Maimonides' 12th century works, originally written in Judeo-Arabic, were translated into Hebrew for broader readership. The most important book of Kabbalah, the Zohar, was written in Aramaic, even though in the period of which it was produced, the 13th century Spain, Hebrew was the normal language for religious writing. The German Maskilim, or scholars of the Jewish Enlightenment, adopted the same strategy in the early 19th century, as well as the Bratslav Hasidim, who translated Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav's Sipurei Maasiot, Tales of Ancient Days, from the Yiddish original. Though Hebrew was confined to these non-vernacular functions for almost two and a half thousand years, it continued to develop. The Hebrew spoken after the Babylonian exile, otherwise known as Rabbinic Hebrew, supplanted Biblical Hebrew as the literary language, and was in turn supplanted by what is known as Medieval Hebrew, which was employed for diverse uses, such as the penning of piyutim, or liturgical poems, or later, the authoring of scientific treatises. The acceptance of Hebrew, though, as the main public language of the Jewish people would have to emerge as a conscious, deliberate act, and not without opposition. When the, quote, revival of the Hebrew language began in the second half of the 19th century, what would become the Zionist movement would enlist Hebrew as part of its program of creating a new and exceptional monoglossic or single-language Israeli identity that stood starkly opposed to the diasporic, polyglossic, or many-languaged Jewish identity. Though there is some debate about the precise date of the beginning of this revival, let's say 1881, 
with the arrival of Eliezer ben Yehuda in the land of Israel, when he famously insisted that he and his wife Devorah speak only Hebrew to each other and to their kids. As the story goes, uh, ben Sion ben Yehuda was the first native speaker of the Hebrew language in over a thousand years. Because his parents did not want him to speak with the other children who spoke different languages, he was, shall we say, a tad socially isolated. He made friends with a dog, which he called Maher, meaning fast in Hebrew, and thus, for the first time in over a thousand years, Maher became the first Hebrew-speaking dog. Look, let's give credit where credit is due, folks. There has never been an example of a language that died, as in ceased to have native speakers, that came once again to have an entire nation of native speakers. Whether Ben Yehuda did it single-handedly, or Maher did it by writing doggerel in Hebrew, what is true is that without Ben Yehuda's public insistence that Hebrew could be revived, and that Hebrew's revival should be combined with a program of Jewish immigration to Palestine, Hebrew would have surely remained dead. Interestingly, and most compelling for me as a Jewish educator, Ben Yehuda had little to do with the nuts and bolts work of the actual revival in pre-state Israel. That difficult task was left to the dedicated teachers of what we would call today Hebrew immersion schools. These institutions educated young Jewish children in a language that was neither their home language nor the language of the street. Moreover, the parents of these children were willing to make their children's language the home language and learn it from them. And yet, despite this idyllic picture of dedicated educators and cooperative parents, there were powerful forces arrayed against the adoption of Hebrew. On the one side, there were devout Jews who were hostile to Zionism and regarded Hebrew as Lashon HaKodesh, a sacred language only to be used for liturgical purposes. Yiddishists rejected Hebrew as well. On the other side, Western European philanthropic organizations sought to enlighten Palestinian Jews by educating their children in the French Alliance schools, English schools sponsored by the Rothschilds, and the German Hilsverein schools. What would later be called the language wars would rage for decades, beginning in the primary grades in 1886 and spilling into the high schools in 1904. By 1908, Hebrew was the language of instruction in a majority of secular Jewish educational institutions, but Hebrew would finalize its victory only in 1913. The Technion was about to open in Haifa, and rumor had it the profs wanted to teach the sciences in German. In response, the first graduating class of Gymnasia Herzliya High School released a statement in the name of all high school's graduates protesting this decision. It was from this cadre of Hebrew-speaking zealots that the Battalion for the Defense of the Language, or Gdud Megine HaSafa, was formed. Their goal was not a military takeover of all educational institutions, but to spread the Hebrew language in pre-state Palestine to propagandize on its behalf and combat the denigration of the language in the public sphere. They set up grassroots language learning schools and impromptu public lectures. They set up a Hebrew reading tent on the beach in Tel Aviv. They organized Hebrew-themed proms and parties. They sent out crews of folks to correct signs with spelling mistakes or to cover signs in Yiddish or Russian with Hebrew signs. They also plastered the walls of major cities with broadsides with the slogans, Divided Language, Divided Soul, or its inverse, One Language, One Soul, or their showstoppers, Jew, Speak Hebrew, or Hebrew, speak Hebrew. This rallying cry was oft repeated by my very Zionist Savta, who disapproved of me speaking English. She maintained almost to her dying day that she never learned English out of spite, 
and resistance to the British occupiers during the mandate. But my Safda did know a little English nonetheless. She was an educated woman, and like Eliakim, Shevna, and Yoach, as well as Rav Shakeh, she could code switch when needed. However, much of the time, when conversation drifted ever so slightly into English, like Eliakim, Shevna, and Yoach, my Savta adhered to the command given them by Chizkiyahu in response to Rav Shakeh, quote, Lo ta'anuhu, do not answer. And she didn't. She never did. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that. And I encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Our 100th episode, when we continue in the book of Isaiah with chapters 40 through 43.